0: Now, if you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to begin with a a quote. It's it's a portion uh, from a speech from some years back. And I want you to listen to it. I mean, you can do the trivia game and try to guess who said it. But also, I want want you to ask yourself if you agree uh, with this this section of the speech. But this person uh, said this. He said, I want to talk to you right now about a fundamental threat to American democracy. The threat is nearly invisible in ordinary ways. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation." Now, that little section came from a speech uh, given in 1979 by then-President Jimmy Carter. And critics of Carter kind of lambasted the speech. They thought that he was blaming the American people for the problems of their administration. Neither here nor there, I don't really care about uh, the context of the speech in national life. I'm more interested, did it sound somewhat relevant to today? I mean, regardless of the specifics of that time, what about the specifics of our time? I wonder if one of the major issues facing our country and society in the last several years is also what we could call a crisis of confidence. On the one hand, many have have lost faith, they've lost confidence in our institutions. There are those who don't trust the government, they don't trust the courts, they don't trust the police, or, on the flip side, they don't trust the CDC, they don't trust public health officials, they don't trust the school board, they don't trust the media. See, it's not a matter of left or right. There's a crisis of confidence in institutions and voices of authority. But the crisis goes further. You know, in the heat of the cultural uh, moment in the last couple of years, there were some who were very bold uh, and out there in their opinions, letting you know what they thought. Uh, but a lot of folks felt sheepish or insecure about what they could or couldn't say. There's a lot of insecurity or fear that we might get in trouble for saying something wrong, or not saying something regarding a multitude of issues. Again, it's not isolated to to right or left, but many experience a crisis of confidence in themselves to navigate our cultural waters. I mean, imagine answering the question Someone today at church asks you, hey, who did you vote for? And you have to answer that question. What would happen to you? You'd have a flood of other questions. Okay, who is this person? What's the context? What, what are they like? What's their bent? You know, how do I couch this so that I'm not going to make them mad as I, as I try to explain or justify, you know, what I did or didn't do? And you'd be kind of angry at them for even asking, you know, is that even appropriate? I mean, if you resonate with any part of that, you have experienced to some degree this crisis of confidence, now, in the first century, the church of Philippi, they experienced similar insecurities. On the one hand, they, they experienced pressure from the wider culture for going against the grain. I mean, they believed some things that did not gel with the Hellenistic culture at the time, uh, and that challenged the supremacy of the empire. So there was pressure from without, but there was also tension within. Within the church was disagreement. Disagreement. We're not totally sure about the specifics, but these dear people who had labored side by side for the gospel were having their unity tested. I wonder if they experienced an insecurity or a a crisis of confidence. Well, into their world and into ours, Paul writes this letter, and he has somewhat of a, a curious remedy for what ails us. His answer to this crisis, at first glance to me, it seems trite. But his answer is, rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. And those who are laughing, you know, might have grown up in church where you sing that little ditty. uh, And you got to repeat it over and over again. And, And we say, really, Paul? That's your answer? We come This morning, to chapter 3 of Philippians, and what Paul writes, it's not floating out in the ether. it's, It's set within a context of this wider letter, within the argument of the letter. And if we were to reflect on the last several weeks, we might ask, okay, how, Paul, how do we have the power to lead the life that you call us to? How do you actually live with the mind of Christ being willing to be sacrificial for the sake of others? How do you do that? How can we wager our lives on Christ? How can we be partners and partakers in the gospel? Again, his answer is surprising. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Really? Really, Paul? In fact, we might say that this is how Paul summarizes the Christian life in this letter. It seems like, according to Philippians, To be a Christian is to rejoice in the Lord. Now, before we get too far into this, let me read our passage, and then then we will dive in. But here we go. We're in Philippians chapter 3, I'll start with verse 1. Paul writes this to the Philippian church and, and to us. He says, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Church, let's pray. God, as we all sit under your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us. That we would hear this call to rejoice, but that we wouldn't just hear it, that we would taste it. God, reveal yourself that we might know you this morning and rejoice in you. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. So, our main point this morning, real simple. Okay. Here's the main point. You take this home, you understand this morning. To be a Christian is to rejoice in the Lord. To be a Christian is to rejoice in the Lord. So, we're going to ask, it'll come up on the screen, a little outline. How do we rejoice in in the Lord. And the answer comes in two parts. We need to lose our confidence and we need to gain Christ. How do we rejoice in the Lord? We need to lose our confidence and then we gain Christ. So let's dive into it. Lose our confidence. This is in verses 2 to 7. After the command to rejoice, Paul says, To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you or, or a safeguard for you. It's likely that Paul issued similar warnings when he was with them in person, that he's now going to include in his letter. And he's saying, it's not, it's not tedious, it's not onerous for me to repeat myself, and it's, it's good, it's a good safeguard for you. Paul has good reason uh, to give this warning. All through Paul's ministry, he has been hounded by those who have come after him, come behind him, and preach a, a, a different message. Their, their message adds to the gospel. These folks became known as, as Judaizers or the circumcision party. They were, they were Jewish Christians who, who, who taught that having accepted Christ, you still needed to take on the outward signs of the law to be one of God's people. And Paul says, no, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ alone. And so Paul gives these warnings, and they are punchy, okay? Out of the gate, he says, look out, three times. Heads up. Look out for the dogs, Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the mutilation. Now, each of these titles, there's a bit of irony in them. Okay, it says, look out for the dogs. The Jewish people, they called Gentiles or non-Jews dogs because in their culture, dogs were not cute, little cuddly, you know, uh, labradoodles. No, no, no. Dogs were curs. They were, they were disgusting creatures. And so they were unclean, and the Jews therefore called Gentiles that, who they saw as unclean. And Paul is flipping that on his head. He says, No, 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 these Jewish Christians, they're the dogs. I mean, it's aggressive. But then he calls them evildoers, or literally, evil workers. Now, uh, in, in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, Paul will hit these teachers more head on than he does in Philippians. But in those works, or in those books, or letters, when Paul unpacks it, he keeps talking about how they teach that you need to pursue the works of the law, the works of the law. And Paul says, No, 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 it all depends on faith. Well, here. Paul calls them evil workers. They're going to preach works of the law, but they are evil workers. Again, I I think he's flipping that on its head. Lastly, he he calls them, literally he calls them the mutilation. Now, our English translations sometimes spread that out or try, try to make sense of it. The very next verse, he says, we are the circumcision. What's going on is this group, they called themselves the circumcision. That was the people of God. They they were marked at this outward mark of circumcision. He says, no, 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 you're not the circumcision. We are. You are the mutilation. And, you know, you don't need to to know Greek to hear it, but circumcision is peritome. And he says, you're the katatome. Okay, peritome, it's the cutting around. Okay, circumcision, circumference, scission, cut. Okay, cutting around, katatome, the cutting down. Okay, we're the circumcision, you're the the mutilation. Again, it's aggressive, it's punchy. A lot of you are like, I didn't need to hear any of that. I'm sorry. Okay, (laughs) now, again, Paul, he's going after him. After this threefold lookout, we get the crux of the issue, verse 3. He says, no, no, we are, we are the circumcision. That is, we are the true people of God. How do we know? Because we worship by the Spirit of God. And glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. So on the one side are those who put their confidence in the flesh. These are the dogs and the evil workers and the mutilation. On the other side are those who glory in Christ. They boast in Christ. Now from here, Paul makes an interesting move. Okay? He's going to beat them at their own game. He says, you know, that, that we boast in Christ. And they, and, and therefore put no confidence in the flesh. But, he says, if anyone could, if anyone could put confidence in the flesh, it would be me. See, he's not an outsider criticizing their system. He's speaking from experience, from someone who has been on the inside. So he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He then outlines his seven reasons for confidence. The first four are all about identity. Identity, who we are, or who he is, rather. And the last three are all about performance, what he's done. So he begins on the eighth day, circumcised on the eighth day. He's not new to this party. He's not new to these outward signs. He was born into it. He was born into this religious system. He's got the right religion. He's of the people of Israel. He's from the the right people group. He's got the right ethnicity, the right bloodline. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin. Okay, Benjamin was the only tribe that stayed with Judah when ancient Israel divided. Okay, his parents proudly named him Saul after the first king of Israel, Saul, who was a Benjaminite. Okay, they're proud to be a Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin, they were the warrior tribe, the shock troopers who led Israel's army into battle. Okay, this is politics. So he's got, he's got the right religion, he's got the right ethnicity, he's got the right politics. And then, creme de la creme, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. okay I, I, I'm a Hebrew born to Hebrews, I have the right language or culture, the right family. His identity, which he received by virtue of his birth, was flawless, according to these other people's standards. But then he goes on, from who he is to what he's done. He had become an elite Pharisee, okay? scrupulous in following the law, highly educated by the famous rabbi Gamaliel. But even among the Pharisees, he stood out because he zealously persecuted the church. Now that word zeal, it's, it's, a, it's a code word for a devout Jew who fought the enemies of God. And Paul fought them, persecuting, chaining them, dragging them back, killing them. He sees himself like Phineas. Do you know that name? He was one of the sons of Aaron who in his zeal took out a big spear and and speared an Israelite who was um, fornicating with a Midianite right in front of the the tent of meeting, and Phinehas kills him, and he gets praised for his zeal. Paul says, that's me. I had zeal. I fought the enemies of God. And then he ends with another crescendo. He says, under the law, I was blameless. He has the perfect pedigree. He has all the credentials. He surpassed All that was promoted by these potential enemies. If you've seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mama says he was bonafide. Okay, he was bonafide. If anyone could put confidence in the flesh, if anyone could have confidence in themselves, it was Paul. Think with me. Our world today hasn't changed all that much from the first century. Because we still feel pressure to find our confidence in the flesh, in who we are or what we can do, in our identity or in our performance. I mean, the categories that Paul uses for his confidence, they map pretty well onto some of the important categories for today. Ethnicity, politics, language and culture. I mean, do we have the right sticker on our car or the right placard in our lawn or do we run up the right flag on our flagpole? Do we make it clear where we stand on social media? Do we speak the right lingo? Can we use the right trade terms to be accepted? I mean think about the the, the social currency. Think about the, the, the currency among your friends or your family members or your coworkers. What is the right pedigree to get you acceptance? or belonging, or advancement in the circles that you run in? Where do you place your confidence? Or on the flip side, maybe, where do you have a lack of confidence? Where do you feel particularly insecure? Paul's confidence was in who he was and what he did. And it's the same today. Many find their confidence in who they are, others in what they can do. So some of us feel tremendous pressure to perform or to project or to present ourselves a particular way. You know, we better say something or or do something or be something. You know, the the woke and the anti-woke can both become Pharisees. The privileged and the oppressed can both be persecutors in their zeal. We all can be terrified of getting things wrong and feel pressure To be blameless. But confidence in the flesh, it's not only seen in our cultural flashpoints. Maybe in your circles, the currency is different. Okay, in your circles, you you feel confidence or lack of confidence, maybe because of your house. Or your vacation that you got to go on and then put on Instagram. Or your job. You know, I always feel bad for moms in particular because they can never win. You know, in some circles, they're bad moms because they stay home full time. And in other circles, they're, they're bad because, you know, they only stay at home. And, you know, they don't have something more meaningful in their life. There's pressure to have a career and do something. There's pressure to stay home. No matter what, they feel bad. You can't win. I feel bad for moms. I'm sorry. Maybe in your circles, it's not that. Maybe in your circles, the confidence comes from your knowledge of pop culture and memes. I hope that's not you. That's more, you know, junior high. But okay. Maybe it's confidence in fitness or acumen in a hobby. You know, uh, surfers have one currency and gamers have another, as do artists and gardeners and mountain bikers and fishermen and sports fanatics and antique enthusiasts. Maybe in your circles, the confidence comes from your kids. You know, their relative success or failure somehow is a reflection on your worth. So, you place your confidence in them. In our culture right now, there's a huge amount of value given to those who have a story of of overcoming adversity. So, maybe in your circles, you gain confidence from having a story to tell about how you have suffered but overcome. On a more trivial level, I've been in circles before where the currency is complaining. You know, you get credit for commiserating. You know, how often do we feel more important because we're so busy? You know, oh, I'm so busy. And that somehow gets us credit with those that we're talking to. For others, our confidence can even be in religion. I believe in the right things, or I do the right things. I'm in the right camp or the right theological tribe. Or maybe we rather define ourselves by who we're not with. You know, no, no, we think I, I'm a follower of Jesus. Don't call me an evangelical. No, no, I'm not one of those. What is the currency in your circles? In your family, with your friends, with your coworkers? What is the pedigree? What are the credentials that give you confidence? What helps you feel bona fide? Now, Paul understands our predicament. He understands that all of these things, that they are gain; they get us ahead in certain circles. He understands. He was flawless. But, but, okay, that word, so important in our passage in Paul's argument as a biblical term, but, it's so huge. The clinching statement in this section comes in verse seven. Paul says, but, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. See, Paul has done an audit of his life in light of Christ and realized something huge. Everything that used to go in the gain column is now belongs in the loss column. In light of Christ, he had to lose his confidence, to give up his confidence in himself. See, to rejoice in the Lord, to worship by the Spirit of God means, well, to to glory in Christ, to boast in Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh. Whatever currency or reasons for confidence that we live with, Paul calls us to lose them for Christ. He says, be be part of. Be part of something that, that transcends, you know, the political division. Be part of something that transcends your cultural division. Be part of something that transcends all of these things that cause strife among you. Lose your confidence. Now, friends, that may seem scary, and I just want to say, uh, yes, it is. But there is good news here. Because imagine for a moment the the levity, the lightness. Imagine the, the freedom you would feel if you were liberated from pursuing confidence in these things. Imagine the, the, the ballast or the fortitude you would experience. Paul says it's possible. It's possible to have that. It's possible to feel that. See, many of us know the pressure to be something or to perform And we can see in ourselves how we are seeking confidence in the flesh, but maybe we see no way out of that hustle and grind. How do we rejoice in the Lord? Paul says we lose our confidence in order to gain Christ. Let's see how how we can do this. So he makes a turn, gain Christ, verse 8 to 11. Paul's audit, his new accounting, his reckoning, it comes with a new affection. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, for Paul, to count his previous confidence as rubbish or dung, maybe you've heard teachers preach on this, how that's a pretty crass term, To do that, to count previous confidence as rubbish, would be nigh impossible apart from something replacing it. To merely, you know, to merely say, put no confidence in the flesh, well, that would feel like self-annihilation. We lose our identity. We lose ourselves if we don't have something to replace it. Paul has found something. He says that he suffers the loss of all things. He willingly gives it all up in order to gain Christ knowing is of surpassing worth. It's of surpassing worth to know him, says Paul. See, Paul doesn't just say no to confidence in the flesh. He says yes to Christ. He gets something. He gains Christ. In fact, to gain Christ means gaining three things. Okay? To gain Christ is to gain status in Christ, conformity to Christ, and intimacy with Christ. We're going to walk through each of these. So it begins with status in Christ. When we gain Christ, we gain status in Christ. Paul says that he wants to gain Christ and be found in him. And then he explains, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, this is a huge idea, and I'm so glad we're going to study Romans this fall when we unpack what it means to, to have the righteousness of God from faith. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to do that over the next year when we get into Romans. But it, that idea, it's tied into the idea of confidence. See, many of us seek confidence in the flesh to have status with other people. We want social currency. We want to fit in. We want to advance in those circles. But Paul, he knew that many also seek confidence Confidence in the flesh when it comes to their status with God, to feel okay with God. This is also called legalism or works righteousness. This is trying to earn your way into a right relationship with God. Not just interpersonal confidence, but spiritual, existential confidence. And Paul says, I gave up all efforts to earn it on my own in order to be found in Him. My righteousness comes through faith in Christ by virtue of his perfection, his sacrificial death on my behalf. I get to rest in him. I get to be found in him so that when God looks at me, he sees Christ. And God declares righteous, perfect, blameless. See, the big theological word for this new status in Christ, it's called justification. And it causes Paul to rejoice. Now think about what what a resource this is. Paul can stand before Caesar prepared for any verdict because he knows that God looks at him and says righteous. Righteous in Christ. Paul can encourage the Philippians to face any accusation from a hostile culture because God looks at them and says righteous in Christ when that registers in our hearts, when it registers in our hearts that we have divine vindication, eternal validation, because we are found in Christ, well, then we no longer need to seek the validation of the world around us. We no longer need to seek confidence in the flesh because our confidence is in Christ. We boast, we glory in him, we rejoice in the Lord. Gaining Christ allows us to freely let go of the fleshly Hustle to prove ourselves to anyone. Gaining Christ means a new status, but it also means conformity to Christ. This is the second thing. Paul says, verse 10, I consider it loss that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, get this, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He wants to know Christ in Christ's suffering and dying, and therefore be conformed or made like Christ in his own suffering and dying. There's something about beholding Christ's death and resurrection, you know, the fact that God brings life out of death, that transforms Paul's perspective of his own suffering. And he comes to see well, the possibility of becoming like Christ. He can be made like Christ through his own suffering and death, and resurrection. Again, the the theological term for this is sanctification, being transformed into greater Christ-likeness. To put it simply, to gain Christ is not just to gain his status, but to gain his character. This is astounding. But Paul is saying that now, now through his suffering, he gets to know and understand Jesus better And to be made like him. Beholding leads to becoming. Paul sees Jesus, he beholds him, and then his own experience is transformed, and he begins to become like him. His suffering can be for Jesus, and it's now linked up with Jesus' own suffering. Now, this is what we've been talking about the last several weeks, so I don't want to belabor it, but you know, having the mind of Christ that's willing to go down, that's willing to suffer for the sake of others. Being willing to suffer and die for others, taking that on, that's becoming like him. To gain Christ is to gain his character and be made like him. Now, status, conformity, do you see the connection to, to Paul's past confidence in the flesh, to what he now counts as loss? See, Paul's past confidence in the flesh was based on his identity and his status as a Jew but also his performance as a zealous Pharisee, who he was and what he did. Well, now that he glories in Christ, well, he has his status being found in him, and he's conformed into his likeness. He doesn't have to perform because he's being conformed. And we can experience that freedom too. We don't have to perform, but we get to be transformed. Gaining Christ means status in Christ. It means conformity to Christ. And lastly, it means intimacy with Christ. When Paul says that he might share in his sufferings, the word, well, it's a familiar one. It's koinonia. We talked about it several weeks ago. Fellowship. Paul doesn't just emulate Christ. He gets to experience him in his sufferings. So, one commentator, Gordon Fee, he says, Christ's resurrection had given him a unique perspective on present suffering as well as an empowering presence, whereby the suffering was transformed into intimate fellowship with Christ himself. More simply, Alec Motier, he says, We are not copying a dead model, but we are walking in fellowship with a living Savior. Let me say that again. We are not copying a dead model. It's, it's, it's we want to become like Jesus. It's not as if we're just, you know, what did Jesus do? You know, become like him. Do what he did. No, 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 no. We get to walk with him. He's alive and we commune with him through living for him. When Paul talks about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, it's not just intellectual assent. It's a relational knowing. It's intimacy. It's intimacy. Now, some of us think that we have status because we believe the right things. If I believe the right things, well, then I get in. You know, we can tick the theological boxes. Others think that God will accept us because we do the right things. Look, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. I'm a good person. We try to imitate Jesus to be like him in our own strength. Now, it's good to believe the right things and it's good to do the right things. But do you know him? Do you know him? Do you rejoice not just in what you believe or what you do, but do you rejoice in him? To gain, Christ is not just to gain his status, which is amazing. It's not just to gain his character, which is astounding, but it's to gain his presence. We get him. Look at verse 11. It can be kind of confusing the way Some of our translations render it, but it almost sounds as if Paul maybe won't attain the resurrection of the dead by any means possible. It's hard to translate, but that's putting the emphasis in the wrong place. It's not whether he will be raised. By any means, it has to do with how, by what path he will reach the resurrection. The by any means, I think, is pointing to the uncertainty of his trial. Paul is ready to share in sufferings and be executed by the Romans like Jesus, becoming like him in his death be executed by the same folks. (laughs) But he's also ready to be let out, to die a different way, to live as Christ, to die as gain. By any means, I think is saying that whatever death is in store for Paul, he's going to gain Christ at his own resurrection. See, there's no crisis of confidence for Paul when it comes to his future. Far from doubting his future, Paul's pointing to his future. He gets Christ now. He knows him intimately. And that knowing will be brought to its completion, its climax at the day of Christ. When his status and his character and his intimacy all become one in the same. when Christ is all and in all. To gain Christ and be found in him means Christ belongs to him and he belongs to Christ. He can sing, I am his and he is mine. Paul calls it the surpassing the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's personal for Paul. He knows him. When Paul says in verse 3 that he glories in Christ, puts no confidence in the flesh, that word glory, it's, it's most often translated as boast in the New Testament. He boasts in Christ. And, and the, the Jewish listeners to Paul's letter may have heard in the back of their minds the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Maybe you've heard these before. Jeremiah 9, 23-24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Paul says, I know him. I know him. I had everything. I had everything. I had every reason to boast, but now it's trash. It's nothing compared to knowing him. This is why Paul glories in Christ. This is why he sees surpassing worth that makes everything else rubbish. It's why he rejoices in Christ. He knows him so our main point to be a Christian is to rejoice in Christ to lose our confidence and to gain Christ This new accounting it's a picture well it's a picture of conversion Paul dies to his old life and is raised to new life in Christ He looks at the old life and says you're dead to me you are lost and he looks at his new life and he rejoices And it's surpassing worth. Death, resurrection, repentance, faith, loss, gain, rubbish. Surpassing worth. But this isn't just a one-time event. Paul continues to count it as all rubbish. He keeps it in the loss column, despite every temptation to find confidence in it again. He keeps regarding it as loss in order that he might continue to gain Christ. It's an ongoing accounting and an ongoing joy. To be a Christian is to rejoice in Christ daily. So let me ask where is your confidence this morning? Or where is your lack of confidence? Are you hustling? Are you striving to find your confidence in who you are or what you can do? Or have you tasted this joy? Can you feel the surpassing worth of knowing him? Not just hear about it, but experience it. Can you taste and see and know that worth that will drive out all past confidence? That you you will gladly lose your confidence to gain him. That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord.